Hello and welcome to this edition of Nightlight. I understand there are so many questions right now uh, about intercession, prayer for the country, concern for the present situation. Uh, I get a lot of emails and phone calls and conversations, and every one of them are important. Every one of them are valid. I wish all of you could be together with me in all of these questions because everybody's questions are important and valid and the different points of view are all important. I I don't think anybody's position is uh, just completely out to lunch. And the reason that is true is because there's so many variables and there's so many directions that things could go. And, of course, that awakens all kind of questions philosophically, and then that awakens all kind of questions theologically. Well, how much is set in cement and how much is open to variations of possibility? Then other people want to know, well, what about the what about the end-time prophecies? And then other people want to know, what about the gift of prophecy and the office of the prophet? And how much do we pay attention to the prophetic words that are uh, coming from various parts of the body of Christ? Uh, The charismatic part of the church has an answer to that, that the non-charismatic part of the church, if there is such a thing, I don't know that there is such a thing as a non-charismatic part of the church, if you understand the meaning of the charism and that the whole body of Christ is called to it, but you understand what I'm saying. There's a a part of the church that understands the flow of the gift of prophecy and the office of prophet, and there's a part of the church that has not educated itself in those areas. But still, all these questions, every one of those things I just mentioned, could we could fill up the whole hour with just each one of them individually. I want to try to address them the best I can in in the time that we've got together in the hope that it will encourage you in your intercession, in your stand in faith, and in your interaction with people. Because uh, I don't think anybody who, who listens to Nightlight has an attitude uh, of keeping their head in the sand, not at all. So I don't want to insult your intelligence by blowing a trumpet of warning. Everybody's heard the trumpet. Everybody's paying attention in this audience, I believe, uh, to the fact that we are on the threshold of uh, momentous events. And it will be determined, I believe, by the body of Christ, whether those momentous events are unto life and godliness and blessing or judgment and uh, even destruction in some areas. I think we can lay aside any prophetic word that talks about the end of the world. <laughs> that would be an easy out. I think some of, some of that maybe comes from wishful thinking. I think some people say, I just wish that the world would end. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I just tickled myself just saying it out loud. But uh, no, the, the, 
we're not going to get to stop early and go home and, and not finish the work. Uh, it reminds me of times as a boy when I would say, you know, it's going to rain. We can't. Oh, and my mom would say, no, rain, little rain doesn't help. It doesn't hurt you. You know, you can just uh, stay cooled off and finish the yard work. The Lord is not going to uh, let you come in early. And, of course, that addresses the whole pre-trib rapture struggle. Uh, like I told you, everything that I'm mentioning here, we could spend the entire hour on just those individual subjects. But I think regardless of what you believe about the rapture, regardless of what you believe about end-time prophecy, the thing that we can settle on is that we are not being called to escape we are being called to stand in the midst of the most difficult philosophical, theological, sociological, economic, racial, and sexual issues of our, of our generation and of any generation in some ways. And uh, if we are salt of the earth and light of the world then there should be no question about what our calling is. It's to be salt, and it's to be light. Salt stops rot, and light exposes darkness. And so we are to be people who stop the rot and expose the darkness. But the sad fact is we've tried to do it politically only, for some parts of our history. And then other parts of the church have tried to completely ignore the political aspect, thinking it's only a, a spiritual thing. I, I've never quite understood how you can separate spirituality from the nuts and bolts of living in a culture. Politics, the word Politics comes from the root word policy, where we get the word policy. A policy has to do with the way we treat people. Now, if you can explain to me how it's possible to separate how we treat people from spirituality, I would like to know it. Obviously, I wouldn't like to know it because I don't believe it exists. But the idea that we can be spiritually minded and not be involved in the, the policy-making issues of the, the country we live in is the reason that the country we live in is such a mess. It's the reason that we're in such dire straits. Because the people of God have abandoned our responsibilities in these issues for as long as I've been alive. I mean, my entire lifetime has been, uh, I've lived my life in the era of the apostasy of the church as we have abandoned everything from uh, education to the arts to political science to economy to uh, news and journalism to, uh, well, every area you can name. And so now we're wondering why uh, journalism is completely devoid of objectivity and truth-telling. 
Uh, we're wondering why our uh, entertainment industry is so sick, why politically things are so askew, why educationally uh, we have a generation that can not read or write but believes everything that it's told by the journalism uh, circus and uh, takes its concepts of right and wrong and truth and lies from that that world. And so God is not going to let us fly out of here. What, what God is going to do is require us to get up and uh, put our big boy britches on and begin to live in the world and learn to not be of the world. Whereas actually the church in my generation has pretty much lived of the world and in the world. And so God has promised to shake everything that can be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken may remain. Now that verse in Hebrews was written to the Jewish believers before the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And so when when the, the, the letter to the Hebrews says, I'm going to shake everything that can be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken may remain. It's a verse that I quote commonly. I, I quote it a lot. The reason that I do is because we are again, in that same kind of situation. But the original statement was, I'm going to shake everything that can be shaken. And then the temple the temple is destroyed. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed. Everything that the Jewish believers had known, their entire world was rocked. It was the, it was the end of their world as they knew it, but it was not the end of the world. It was the beginning of their calling to the world. Well, I'm not prepared to say that the United States is going to be destroyed on the same level that the city of Jerusalem was or that the temple was. But there is a shaking going on that is shaking the walls of evangelicalism and shaking the temple of religion, Christian Christian religion, quote-unquote, in America and in the West. And I think God is allowing it for the same reason, uh, similar reasons. I won't say the same reasons, but very similar reasons. God will shake everything that is becoming, that has become uh, comfortable and uh, that has become a way of avoiding obedience to the call to take the gospel of the kingdom to the whole world. And so anything that becomes comfortable for the flesh in opposition to the call of the spirit, God is going to shake it. He's going to annihilate it. And so we've been living in that kind of uh, tension for my entire life, but in the last 20 years, especially since 9-11, everything has taken uh, a much stronger move toward the separation of light from dark, the separation of the real from the unreal, 
and the forcing, if I can use that word, of believers to begin to put up or shut up. And so we're facing an era now where our testimony and our claims and what we claim to believe as Christians is being put to the test in such a way that we will either be proven to be true or we will be proven to be false. Uh, this shows up quite often in in mail that I get or, or phone calls that I get for help. And I, I want to be really careful how I say this. This could come across really wrong. So Lord helping me, I'll try to get this across. Uh, parents contacting me because they've just discovered that their son or their daughter is in uh, some sexually perverse relationship. And they are understandably heartbroken. Their world is being shaken. Their walls are being broken. Their temple is collapsing. And they are crying out for help. And I want to always be sensitive and and uh, humble in my response to to these phone calls. But yet... Here's what I here's what I find quite often, not always, but but often enough that I'm bringing it up now. The attitude in many of these parents, and again, it's understandable because they're in shock and they're in sorrow and they're in grief. But I'll tell you, a lot of them are also in real anger, and their anger. I understand their anger. I've been guilty of the same anger at times. Their anger is how dare a son or daughter of mine who grew up in my house come back to me and report to me that they are living in uh, some immoral relationship. And quite often it's a homosexual or lesbian relationship. And the attitude, when you get past the sorrow, the attitude is they need to straighten up. They need to repent. They need to snap out of it. They need to come back to reality and uh, get back uh, where they belong and just straighten up and fly right. And so my job at first is to be empathetic and and loving. Uh, And that's, of course, our job always is to be loving. But sometimes being loving means telling the truth that is not easy to hear. And so more and more and more I'm having to talk to people I mean, they're church people, obviously, because they wouldn't be calling me if they were pagans. I mean, if they were people with no concept of of sexual morality at all, they wouldn't be contacting me. So these are all what we would call good church people. And they are, I guess, good church people. But I guess what I'm trying to say is in the in the face of this present darkness... When the salt has failed to be salt and light has failed to be light and the rot and the darkness has increased as a result of the failure of the church to be salt and light, then when someone calls with this attitude that I'm describing, you got to wonder, where where is the problem? Well, here is the problem. The problem in this context is the, it's it's manifested in the way they describe what they want their children to do. They want them to snap out of it. Snap. What does that mean? Snap out of it. You think this is just some some thing they some frolic they've decided to go 
check out momentarily that they were in their right mind and everything was normal and then all of a sudden they woke up one day and heard a song on the radio that says I kissed a girl and I liked it so she jumps up and decides I think I'm going to go do that too or is there, is there a deeper root wound in these children that started in a church system that was shallow and lacking in discernment, lacking in reality, a mother and father, and I'm not saying this is always true, I'm just saying, can't we examine the question? A mother and father whose Christianity was more cultural than it was real, where the presence and, and reality and love of Jesus was not manifested, it was only an enculturated Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, Pentecostal, let me just try to insult everybody the best I can, uh, a church system that went through the motions and maybe even had some degree of reality. But do you know, when you only have a little bit of reality, the lack of reality is more disgusting when there's a little bit of reality. Because if there's a little bit of reality... The question can arise, why isn't there greater reality then? If there's, you really believe Jesus is the Son of God, but it doesn't seem to affect your, your racism. It, you really believe Jesus is the Son of God, but it doesn't affect your business practices. It doesn't affect your anger. Let me, let me quit picking on other people and deal with where Clay has failed in front of his children. It, it hasn't really informed your anger very much or your your reaction to, to negatives in your life. I don't see the love and joy and peace consistently in you, dad or mom. And and so uh, there's been a lack of bonding. There's been a lack of uh, of emotional support. Now, listen, I can just hear the reactions coming from certain people right now, and I, I'm not unsympathetic to your reactions if you were to say now clay listen don't start blaming the parents the, this is all coming from a, a generation of, of sex soaked irresponsible immature people uh you know proverbs 30 talks about there's a generation who always blames its parents for everything i'm totally with you on that i understand that and that's fitting <clears throat> when it's fitting, but it's not fitting when it's not fitting. In other words, if we are dealing with a young man or woman who has just decided to go off into selfish sexual rebellion to experiment with lust because they've been soaking their brains in pornography and television shows, which is almost not any different nowadays, and uh, uh, and just willfully disregard a childhood and a, a an adolescent uh, experience of loving, godly, stable parents who have uh, raised them in the truth and demonstrated the truth. Not perfectly. None of us are going to ever demonstrate the truth perfectly. But you know who I'm talking about. Your heart is set to obey the Lord the best you know how and you're striving uh, to manifest obedience to, to the kingdom of God 
in, in your life. And, and even more than that, if I could say it that way, you demonstrate the love of God in your life by the way you love and relate to your children and to one another. So that they've grown up, they've grown up in a family of stability and they have no real excuse for going off into aberrant sexuality of any kind, whether it's homosexuality or living together outside marriage or any other kind of sexual sin. But they don't have that excuse. If you were to say to me, don't blame the parents, I would say, hey, I'm with you. I totally understand. They're doing this out of some, some selfish deal in their own hearts. But I want to tell you something. After 35, almost 40 years, well, really over 40 years of dealing with college students and, and teenagers and families, I don't find that many young people who are just frolicking off into the pagan boonies, experimenting with craziness because they're on a lark and just want to check it out. The fact is that we've got 40 plus years, see my adult generation, I'm 62 years old, 40 plus years ago, we sat back and let the murder of babies become the law of the land. What were we doing when that happened? And since that day, there has been a continuous disintegration of marriage, family, love, support, emotional uh, uh, dynamics necessary for the raising of, of stable, healthy, heterosexually viable relationships that are faithful and, and that can reproduce uh, in, in other uh, dynamics on the same level. And we've just not been able to face that so now, see, homosexuality is as logical after, after the way we've lived the last 50 years in this culture. It's as logical to expect an eruption of homosexual uh, activity as it is to plant corn and expect a corn crop. You cannot have the murder of babies which was preceded by the pill. I've mentioned this in previous messages. Preceded, preceded by birth control. And I'm not saying birth control itself is good or bad. I'm just saying that the fact is, and our Catholic brothers and sisters warned us of it, that when the pill came available in 1962, the harvest of that planting was this slow but sure disintegration of the marriage covenant Marriage was no longer seen as a place for the uh, propagation and rearing of children. Sex became uh, available outside marriage. Women found they could now be as irresponsible sexually as men had been because pregnancy was not a problem. And so it was only 10 years after that that if you have a baby that slipped past the pill, you can, you can kill it. Now, once that foundation is laid, 
every other disintegrating force imaginable will will automatically begin to be manifested. So marriage disintegrates, adultery and fornication are becoming more and more the norm. Pornography automatically, automatically will be connected to that. And wherever there is fornication, heterosexual fornication and pornography, homosexuality will absolutely always emerge out of a heterosexually impure milieu. But what I'm, what I'm dealing with with these parents, many of whom, as I deal with them, begin to confess their own, their own sexual sins while they were raising their children. And I, listen, I'm not condemning them because they have sexual sin. I'm saying they, they had no conscience about it. No, nothing disturbed them about it until this exposure of their children in their own sexual brokenness. So see, what I'm saying is nothing awakened them to their own immoral position until it got so extreme that they end up coming to me or someone for help to try to, quote, get their kids straightened out. See, the whole motivation is to get their kids straightened out with no concept that that wound in that child may have begun when they found the porn in daddy's closet 30 years before, or dad was so soaked in porn in his own little private fantasy world that he didn't even realize, because this is what porn does to the male brain, he didn't even realize that sometimes he was inappropriate to his developing teenage daughter, so much so that it wounded her and frightened her of interaction with males, and she found herself more and more turning to females for the emotional support she lost when her father stepped over the line with her. Now, if you think that's over the top, it's only because you don't deal with what I deal with, and I don't mean that to sound condescending, though I'm sure it does sound condescending, but I really don't care. My point is, I know what I'm talking about because I deal with it. I deal with it every day. And so the failure of the people of God to take responsibility for our heterosexual sins, we've sown the wind, now we're reaping the whirlwind. So when it comes to praying for the political situation or the nation, the, the, the culture, the, 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 the mess we're in, uh, I wonder if we're not daunted in our prayer life for the nation the same way these parents are daunted in their relationship with their children. They're not making any progress with their children because, number one, they're not taking responsibility for their own sins before the Lord. Number two, they're coming at their children with a disconnected, emotionally disconnected, and spiritually hypocritical posture of superiority and, and false holiness uh, that disregards the emotions and dynamics that helped put the child in the position that the child has now come to. Uh, and please don't, don't send me emails telling me 
that the child still is responsible for his choices. I know all of that. Uh, I know you know that I know all of that, so forgive me, you know. Nothing is more unfair than to assume you've said something on your end that you didn't say and then me answer it back like I heard you say it. But I guess the reason I'm, I'm a little overheated by this subject is this is what I run into in all these areas. I'll give you another example. Racism. Uh, I don't know how many times I have had to encounter white people who say something like, I wish they would just get over it. For heaven's sakes, the Civil War is 150 years ago. Nobody is a slave. Nobody's been subjected to slavery, for heaven's sakes. Why don't they just get over it? I'll tell you why they don't just get over it. Let me, let, me, let me give you just one example. Many years ago, I was asked to come speak uh, at a church that I was formerly relate, very closely related to. And I got up to speak, and as I was speaking, there was a black man sitting on the front row. Big man. About four inches taller than me. And uh, as I was speaking, I kept being drawn to him. I, I couldn't get my eyes off of him. I kept being drawn drawn to him. And finally it got so, uh, I caught on that the Lord wanted me to speak to him. And when I turned to speak to him, I didn't know what I was going to say to him. But I heard myself, so, I mean, I heard it come out of my mouth the same way they heard it come out of my mouth. I said, sir, <clears throat> The Lord shows me that when you were 12 years old, you watched your father killed in the front yard of your home by a group of white men who I found out later were Baptist deacons and Klansmen. Not all Baptist deacons are Klansmen. Not all Klansmen are Baptist deacons. But the sad fact was there's enough of that going on that they can be spoken of in this context in in the same category. Uh, If that upsets you to hear that, then may it move you to prayer and repentance and intercession for those parts of the body of Christ that have tolerated that kind of ungodliness and evil in the name of uh, racial purity. Because it's just Nazism. But the point is that when I spoke those words, his response was a scream like I can't uh, imagine, I, I, I can't mimic it, I wouldn't even try. I mean, it, it sounded like, I guess you would say like a wild animal caught in a steel trap. In the scream that came out of him, he fell over on the, on the, on the floor the whole meeting was disrupted, obviously, for the rest of the time. We had spent all of our time ministering to this man because that was exactly what had happened. Why the Holy Spirit chose to do it that way, I don't know. And maybe I have, maybe I shouldn't blame the Holy Spirit. Maybe I should have been more mature, more discerning, more have more discretion. I think if I had a similar circumstance today, maybe I would be more discretion show more discretion about how to approach it, but I don't know if I would or not, because I don't think the word was just for that man. 
I think the whole church needed to hear that word and see the result of that event. Because do you understand this this event that I'm talking about took place about 1987, 1986. Uh, This man would have been probably in his early 40s. This murder of his father took place when he was about 12 years old. That would have put it in the early uh, 1960s, right in the heat of uh, the racial conflict in this country. Now, my point in asking telling you that story is to ask this question. Should he have just gotten over it? Should he have just snapped out of it? I've actually heard white people say, my gosh, man, they've taken over the the NFL, they've taken over the NBA, they've got their own TV shows, they've got their own networks, Uh, they're all over the movie screens. Uh, that, That should, I mean, aren't they satisfied yet? Well, I got a, I got a question for you. Have you have you got have, is your world any better than it would be if there wasn't white people in the NFL or the NBA or on television? What does the NFL, NBA, and television have to do with anything? What, what's that got to do with with anything? You see the irrational way we we illogically work out our logic. We're not thinking through the real issues of life when we say things like that. We're just blowing, hurting people off and flipping out some indifferent, shallow, meaningless response that's a non-response. You think... What if that man? What if that man had been? Uh, what if he had not been a Christian? He he was a godly man. He loved the Lord. His his family was a godly family. His dad is with the Lord because white men murdered him in his front yard. Uh, but what if he had been raised without the Lord's grace and influence on him? Do do you think he would have woke up one day and said, you know what? Black people are being treated a lot better now than they used to be because we we got basketball contracts and we play football. Whoop-de-doo. It's all okay now. They murdered my daddy, but it's all okay. No, I don't think so. I think that that horror in him of that event would have done what what it would do in any of us. It would have suppurated and 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 disintegrated and 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 worked inside him. And, and he would have found other people of like feelings and like experiences. And they would begin to get together and they would begin to compare notes. And then there would be uh, uh, political agitators who would come in and sit on top of those feelings and begin to address them and uh, tell stories like I'm telling right now, but with a motive of stirring up revenge and, and unrest and evil and then throw in a few, a few, I say a few, they are very few, bad cops, bad cops who come in and just reaffirm uh, the evil and the crookedness. It only takes one bad event to ruin a lot of good. Are you, are you, hearing, are you hearing the heart in this? So every time I see what I think is an over-the-top, radical black agitator spewing off what seems like unfair, 
un, un, unsubstantiated accusations against white racism. I recognize that's a real possibility and very even, uh, even a real probability. But it's balanced in me by the awareness of what I saw that day happen to that man. He's vividly ensconced in my imagination and my memory and in my heart. And if you had heard the cry come out of him that we heard that day, just the sound of that cry, the scream of a 12-year-old coming out of the mouth of a 40-plus-year-old grown man who finally, finally was being vindicated in the presence of other white Christians in the same city where this evil took place. Finally, he knows that not only are they being made aware but by the power of the Holy Spirit, Almighty God is letting him know, I saw it, I saw it, and it will not go undealt with. There is justice in the universe. That's what that scream was saying coming up out of him. So, you know, politically, it's very popular right now to try to equate uh, homosexuality and racism in, in, in the sense of uh, some saying, well, Obama, for instance, uh, making reference to uh, uh, the struggle of the black people to be treated fairly is now being manifested as the struggle of the homosexual community to be treated fairly. And he made reference in his first speech on this topic of the uh, uh, memory of Selma, speaking of Selma, Alabama, and the March on Selma, which anybody my age painfully remembers. But then he equated Selma with Stonewall. Did you remember that speech? Some of you might have heard it. It's now become a, a common mantra. Selma and Stonewall. Selma and Stonewall. Well, let's compare Selma and Stonewall. Selma, we all know, was black husbands and wives and single men and women and teenagers and elderly people. Many of them Christians. I would say the majority of them Christians. Marching against the Nazi-like oppression of a white race that had oppressed and mistreated and murdered their people for years. They were marching for the freedom to live a normal life and interact like any other citizens of the nation were allowed to interact. Uh, they were crushed under by uh, the Democratic Party and all the members of the Democratic Party that were participants in the oppression against the black people and manifested in the KKK and other white supremacist organizations, all supported by Democrats, by the way. What was Stonewall? Stonewall, for those of you not familiar with it, was the name of a homosexual bar in New York where, yes, the police had at times been oppressive, had been uh, unfair. But let me tell you what Stonewall primarily was. Stonewall was a place where 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old runaway boys would go 
And they would be taken under the wings of grown men who would then pass them around as sex objects. Stonewall was the place where all the homosexual predatory men of the city knew they could go to if they wanted interaction with underage boys. That's what Stonewall was. So you have the President of the United States who can't tell the difference between what was going on in Selma, godly men and women, husbands and wives, parents and children, grandparents and grandchildren, marching against open evil oppression because of the color of their skin. And you compare that to Stonewall, which is a place of predatory sexual perversion with no boundaries and no 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 mindset that there should be any boundaries around their behavior. And he equates those two. It's insanity. But here is another point that you've got to be willing to listen to. And if you're not willing to hear what I'm about to say, it only demonstrates the depth of the problem that we're up against when we try to be salt and light and are failing to do it. Though you dare not equate Selma and Stonewall in that context, there is one area where the homosexual issue and the black issue or the racial issue does parallel one another. And it is this. If you or I tell a story of a black man being mistreated by a white man, it may evoke certain emotions in us. But if you tell another story about a white man being mistreated by a black man, it may evoke opposite emotions or different kinds of emotions in us. The same thing is true with the homosexual issue. If I tell you the story of some predatory man in Stonewall mistreating a 13-year-old boy for his own pleasure, that evokes understandable rage and rejection and resistance to that in you. But if I tell you the story of a young man who I know personally who went to his pastor at the age of 15 because he was struggling with same-sex attractions, And his pastor opened up Romans chapter 1 and read it to him and told him that he was predestined to be a vessel of dishonor, that God's wrath was upon him, that the irrevocable judgment of God was on him and there was no hope for him. And that boy left that pastor's study shattered beyond repair and became one of the most virulent anti-Christian, pro-homosexual activists in the state of Texas. What would you say to that story? You see, this is what's so difficult about storytelling. We need good storytelling. Because we need something that will counteract bad storytelling. And facts and figures never trump a bad story. This is one reason why the Democratic Party is able to get so much emotionally manipulated, uh, uh, emotionally manipulated responses from people. Uh, 
the people on the right don't tell very good stories. People on the left tell great stories. It doesn't matter if they're true or not, as long as they're good stories. People on the right just tell facts and figures. Well, facts and figures make good radio. That's why people on the right have a lot of popular radio shows. People on the left never have been able to do popular radio shows. They always flop. You know why? Radio doesn't tell very good stories, not in that format. To do good radio stories, you have to be willing to do the old radio setup of the 1930s and 40s, uh, which we probably would never go back to in our culture. And so the left never can do that, but they can do really good television, really good commercials, really good conventions, and great TV coverage with very powerful storytelling in their convention. Never mind that the stories were often bogus, that there was no truth, because when you have no morals and you have no higher sense of responsibility to uh, eternal transcendent truth, then you can just propagandize, just like Goebbels did for Hitler. And so propagandizing is always easy to do on the left because there's no moral responsibility to the truth. People on the right do great radio because they are fact-based and people want facts. Just give me the facts. And so we end up living from the neck up on the, on the right and from the neck down on the left. And so people on the left are always talking about how they feel about things, how they feel. People on the right seem to be without feeling. They just want the facts. Well, God never intended us to be headless or heartless. He intended us to tell true stories that reach the heart and get to the facts. That's what the scripture is. And so I'm saying all that to say that when it comes to racism, I could tell you some stories that would make you really angry at black people. And they might be true stories. But if my motive is to impugn black people, then my facts may be right in the stories, but my motive is wrong. You can tell true facts and still be a liar. You can, you know, all gossips do that. Gossipers are murderers because they tell true things about people, but the motive to do it is to destroy people's lives. And so in the eyes of God, they're not liars, they're murderers. So my point in all that is to say, if I tell you a lot of stories that just pump you up toward how evil black people are and how wrong they are and how they just need to be, and you X, Y, Z, fill in the blanks, then I might be telling true stories, but if I'm telling it in a wrong motive, I am operating in a spirit of murder. On the other hand, I could tell stories about mistreatment of black people, but I would also counter it by explaining the stories behind the stories that may have led up to the mistreatment by black people of other people. You, you understand what I'm saying? You start telling both stories. None of us lives in a vacuum. Somebody could have come up to me and tell me some ugly story about that dear black man in that meeting that night. Say, well, you just don't know what a racist, what a racist guy he is. Well, he may be racist. Do you think he might have any possibility 
of, of having a valid reason to have racist struggles in him? The point is, at the foot of the cross, he forgave his father's murderers, and he was able to do it a lot easier when he saw a church full of white people gathered around him weeping and in, in repentance over the horrible evil that was done to him. Same thing is true with homosexuality or any other human struggle that we're in. Uh, I could tell you a story of the, the, the two homosexual men who picked up a 14-year-old boy in Arkansas who was a hitchhiker and they took him home with them and when they found the child's body, he had been repeatedly sexually tortured and murdered by these two men. I could tell you many stories like that. Would that serve any purpose to bring healing to the, the struggle concerning homosexuality? No. And if I only told stories like that or only had that mindset, I would be guilty of murder. I would be guilty of inciting murderous feelings in you. Not communicating truth to you, but inciting murderous feelings. And I would be guilty of murder myself by doing that. Sadly, there are many preachers I have run across who do that from the pulpit. They tell horror stories about uh, things like what I just described. And their, their whole motivation is to say, no wonder God sent fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah. So any young person sitting, or old person, sitting out in the audience who hears that kind of sermon is being told, you're not fit to, to live, you're not worthy of salvation. Of course, none of us are worthy of salvation, but you know what I'm saying, that's the whole point. None of us are worthy of salvation. So who are we to put anyone in a position of being made to feel that they can't be saved or healed or forgiven. But that's what this kind of preaching does. The point of this message, finally, is this. I could tell you stories on either side that could stir up ire and anger, and even righteous anger, about the story that I told. But would it be fully righteous if it didn't tell both sides? For every story that you could hear about a black crime against whites or against anybody that was motivated by black superiority, black, black, uh, the black lives matter so-called mentality, uh, there's always a story opposite. If you don't see both sides, you're not thinking with the thoughts of the Lord and you're not op operating in righteousness. Same thing with homosexuality. For every horror story that I might tell about predatory behavior of uh, a homosexual toward someone that deserves uh, just punishment, I could tell just as many stories of where the church utterly failed to meet someone and love them and help them, or even worse, where the church openly destroyed them in the name of standing for the truth and that kind of thing. Now, all of that is to lay the foundation to say to you in these coming weeks as we come into the time of the election and praying for the country, and this would all be true if there was no election, but the election just serves to, to make everything more poignant and more immediate in its demands. 
How do we pray for the nation? If we pray a black and white, uh, good guys versus bad guys kind of praying, we're get them God, sick them God. Uh, I don't think anybody in this audience thinks like that, so why would I waste my time addressing it? Well, because we're all tempted to. At least, at least I am. I mean, I'm tempted to. I, y'all know that. But to be effective in the spirit realm, to be effective in uh, standing in faith and standing in intercessory prayer for the nation in order for our prayers to be effective to bring about a righteous result, we've got to do away with the black hats versus white hats mentality. Yes, I know some people are involved in such a, a totally committed uh, relationship with evil that it's it's foolish not to say, well, they're black hats. Listen, if, if you support the murder of babies, the destruction of heterosexual monogamous marriage, the destruction of our borders as a nation, the disregard of law enforcement as a God-ordained authority to stop evil from being perpetrated. If, if you take stands like that, your hat's pretty black. But uh, the, the sad fact is no. there may be people who have black hats, but nobody has white hats. All the white hats are at least zebra-striped or just a dingy, dingy gray. And so if we recognize when we're standing against the black hats that we are just wearing a dingy, dingy gray hat, not a white hat. Then we will come before the presence of the Lord with a humility and an authority that God will then wield through us effectively in prayer. Does that make any sense? Uh, I know this is a little bit of an unusual format in, in Nightlight. I've I don't normally pick up a microphone and just try to bear my soul to you on this level, partly because I don't trust myself sometimes to say clearly and fairly what I'm trying to say. I want a friend of mine, he's a good friend because he tells me the truth about myself. He says, you know, even when you're trying to be gentle, sometimes you're really hard. Or even when you're trying to be balanced, you're pretty, you're pretty strongly leaning in one direction. Well, that's not a bad thing if the direction I'm leaning in is the truth. So I don't think there's any balance when it comes to the murder of babies. There's there's no balance there. I've got a dear pastor friend of mine who I absolutely trust and, and honor, but he's got a number of people in his congregation who actually, actually claim that they can separate the murder of babies from how they vote. They say that uh, abortion is not a it's not a political issue. That's exactly what the German people said about the murder of Jews. I mean exactly. And I will say without fear of contradiction, every Christian who votes his pocketbook over his commitment to the salvaging of the life of unborn children will stand before the judgment throne of Almighty God and give account for it in the day of judgment. You will not escape that fact. Yeah, some some hats are manifestly black. 
All I'm saying is, on the subjects that are manifestly black, let me just close with one one story that might illustrate it. Uh, Years ago, when I was doing my part in those days of dealing with the abortion subject, uh, and I got into a heated conversation with a woman who had been uh, fighting us as we were picketing the abortion clinic. The Lord just stopped me in the middle of my heated inter- interaction with her, and he said, you're not looking at her. I said, Lord, I, I can't see anything but her face. He said, no, you're not looking at her. All you're seeing is the mask of anger and hurt And uh, that mask is covered over with another mask of belligerence and stubbornness. You need to look past the belligerence and stubbornness. You need to even look past the anger and hurt and see the person that I see. And until you do that, you're not speaking for me. Well, I'd like to tell you that I spoke lovingly and truthfully to her and got through to her. No, I didn't. I was so in my own anger and so in my own overheated response to her that I just had to, I had to drop the argument and walk away from her, which I did. I walked away from her. And uh, I spent the rest of the afternoon seething in the frustration of that encounter. But from that day forward, I began to have to learn the lesson the Lord is still teaching me. And that is that until I see a person through his eyes, I have nothing valuable to say. Father, I pray for all of us as we enter into this time of intercession for our country, for our elections, and for all the ramifications that will come from those events. Please, Father, cleanse our hearts, cleanse our hands, fill us with your Spirit, and make us true, worthy kings and priests who can wield your authority in prayer effectively for good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.